Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, the site of the egregious and now infamous no call during the NFC playoff uh, games that dashed the Saints' chances of playing in Super Bowl 53, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Little Rock Cares is hosting a two-day food donation event to help federal workers affected by the government shutdown. Donations will be taken Wednesday, January 23rd, 2019, from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. at several locations around Little Rock, including the Clinton National Airport. For more information, visit www.katv.com. Due to technical issues on our last show, we're going to wrap up our discussion of the Willingham case and the post-execution efforts of the Innocence Project to exonerate Willingham, uh, who was convicted for the 1991 murders of his daughters Amber, Carmen, and Cameron. Then Michael and I are going to take another look at the Avery and Dassey cases to talk about the evidence against Avery and Dassey that wasn't covered in our interviews with Michael Griesbach and Kenneth Kratz, including the direct appeals, post-conviction claims, and the status of efforts to exonerate both Avery and Dassey. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. That's 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. It sounds like you're a bit under the weather. Maybe that Saints game is... uh... What's got me all feeling all bad and what have you, but yeah, we were talking about that right before we came on the air. And, ooh, I think I thought um, New Orleans was going to get burnt to the ground, honestly. No, we handled it actually pretty well. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm still getting over the the crud that had me down last week. You you know I was I was sick if I didn't want to do the show. Absolutely. I got that text from me, and I was like, uh-oh, Lisa must be really sick if she ain't wanting to come on the air. That's that's a little odd, <laughs> but I'm glad you're definitely feeling at least a little bit better, and uh, oh, yeah. you know, definitely we'll bear with you as your voice cracks and creaks. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've got my cough drops, so... <clears throat> 
And I will cover the mic, but I don't know how well that's going to work. Well, I mean, it happens, but, you know, things like that uh, occur all sorts of times. You know, this is I've, – I've heard it before, and I'll say it again, you know – this is live. Nothing can go wrong when it's live. So, you know, we'll, we'll roll with mm-hmm. the punches. So. But uh, last time we were on the show, you know, we were talking about, um, we were talking about, and good Lord, uh, Willingham. Uh, what, that would have been two weeks ago tonight. And we got cut off uh, as we were in podcast. I believe that was actually my fault. I'll take the heat on that one, ladies and gentlemen. I do apologize. That would have been my internet. So go ahead and write your hate mail to at uh, Xfinity on Twitter. Go ahead and hit them up. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So we're going to go back to Willingham briefly because I think we pretty much covered everything as far as his case went. Um, but one of the most interesting things I think that I want to highlight again is that between his conviction in 1992 and his execution in 2004, he did not challenge the arson evidence that was used against him until the 11th hour, about two weeks before his execution. And right. the only challenge he made was through Dr. Gerald Hurst, who submitted a report, highly critical of everything the arson investigators did in the original investigation. Uh, But that was not sufficient to meet Willingham's burden uh, to get it sent back to the trial court for hearings and a trial court to determine whether he was entitled to a new trial or not. Right. It makes no sense absolutely to – uh, I mean, it is. It's a Hail Mary, but at the same time, it makes absolutely no sense to do it at the absolute last minute. Like, well, you should have done this at least a few days before. Right. And I, I think if they had done it in the original state habeas claim in 1995, even, even not necessarily with Dr. Hurst or as critical as Dr. Hurst was, but if they had done something – then when Dr. Hurst came along, they might have been able to make the case to get it sent back to the trial court. But what people also don't realize is that even if it had gone back to the trial court, the trial court would have been looking at not only Dr. Hurst's testimony on behalf of Willingham, but he, the court would have also looked at all of the testimony of the fire investigators from the original trial and that's one of the flaws in these reexaminations is that they are not looking at all of the testimony. They're taking pieces and using those pieces to criticize, but then they're making assumptions like they've assumed that other causes weren't ruled out when they were. Right. Right. I mean, that. that... I don't think they automatically jump to arson and murder and, whenever they're doing fire investigations. Well, and, you know, really, when, when it comes down to it, when you have a fire appears to have started in the middle of a child's bedroom and there is no gas, there's no electric, there's nothing that could have caused that fire to start, you're looking at arson and even without any other factors. 
being taken without Willingham's behavior observed by neighbors being taken into account. You're still, if you can't find something that caused that fire to start, you're looking at arson. And it's interesting, Willingham at one point gave an interview and he said, well, you know, maybe my my wife, my ex-wife by that time, Stacy, maybe she said it. Well, that would be arson. And then he said, well, maybe somebody came in that wanted to get at me and they said it. Well, that would be arson too. But according to his later experts, there was absolutely no evidence of arson. And again, I think where people don't understand, they're saying Dr. Lentini and some of these other experts are saying there was no evidence of arson. Not that the fire started some other natural way or accidentally, but they're just saying based on the testimony of the investigators, there was no evidence of arson. And that's different. That's not quite as strong as, as an exoneration when it comes to legal proceedings as it is in the court of public opinion through the media. Right. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, it makes no real sense to, I don't know. I I mean, like I said, the first, in my opinion, I think obvious due diligence had to have been done because the first thing that a, a investigator is going to do isn't going to be jump into okay this person murdered these people uh, i gotta figure right. out how they did it uh you know it, I, I honestly think probably insurance fraud is probably looked at before that well yeah and it is I, i'm not real sure about the background i don't know if he if they own the house or if they were renting it mm-hmm um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think that the problem is people are ignoring the fact that initially the first thing the investigators did was try to figure out how the fire started. Right. They ruled out electrical. They ruled out gas. It was unlikely that either a two-year-old or either one of the one-year-olds accidentally started the fire. And so you're left with how does a fire start in the middle of a child's bedroom without, you know, someone setting the fire. Right. And they yeah, also had I mean, the, you know, the traces of accelerant under the front door jam, <clears throat> which, you know, Blocking a door with fire is a common method to prevent uh, rescuers from coming in and fire out or rescuing somebody in there if the intent is to kill whoever is in the house. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. It's just it's so crazy. It's but, crazy, and I don't understand it at all. But you know, what can you do? So, to uh, to conclude with Bellingham. Sometime in a, around 2006, the Innocence Project became involved because they are abolitionists. They have an agenda. They want to end the death penalty in all states. No circumstances should be eligible for the death penalty. And they need cases to say, see, an innocent person has been executed 
in order to accomplish that goal. And so in spite of the fact that in Cameron Willingham's case, there was no biological evidence used against him. There was no DNA. There was no uh, blood. There was no semen. There was nothing that they could test. But they became involved anyway, and they petitioned the newly formed Texas Forensic Science Commission to examine the evidence used against Willingham and their agenda, of course, was to have the Forensic Science Commission declare that the evidence was faulty and that there was no evidence that he set the fire and that, therefore, he was innocent. But it didn't work out for them that way. Uh, first of all, one of the issues that came up is that several of the commissioners who were uh, – aligned with the Innocence Project's goals, their terms expired, and Governor Perry didn't reappoint them. He appointed new members to the commission. We're not exactly aligned with the Innocence Project. And then also the, the Texas Forensic Science Commission, I think, realized that they might be overstepping their authority and so they sought input from the uh, attorney general as mm -hmm. to whether or not they could even investigate anything that occurred before their effective date in September, I think it was, of 2005. And the, uh, uh, the attorney general said, well, you can investigate, but you don't really have any power as far as changing the outcome of the trial or – <clears throat> or um, saying that the, the testimony was faulty. So um, they eventually did issue a report. It wasn't what the Innocence Project wanted because they found while there were problems with the testimony in some areas that the investigators did not commit negligence and did not were not guilty of any misconduct in connection with their testimony in the Willingham case. So that was strike one. Then the Innocence Project got together with uh, Cameron Willingham's stepmother and some other members of his family, siblings or cousins or uh, other members, and they filed a request with uh, in Travis County, which is the county where Austin, the state capital, sits, uh, wanting a court of inquiry to determine whether the state violated any laws in connection with Willingham's prosecution, conviction, and execution. And right. the judge who was sitting on that court of inquiry was a gentleman by the name of Baird. I think it's Charles Baird. He had been on the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals that reviewed Willingham's original conviction and sentence and unanimously affirmed it. <clears throat> um, Judge Baird had apparently had a change of heart about Willingham's case, and so he was setting the court of inquiry up basically to take the Innocence Project's evidence and then not hear anything else about the case. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the county, the prosecutor in Navarro County, where Willingham was 
was uh, prosecuted, he objected to that as well he should. And he filed a motion to recuse Judge Baird based on a conflict of interest because he had originally sat on the direct appeal or based on the fact that he seemed to be biased. Right. And um, Judge Baird actually thought that he was in a hearing stage. He wasn't really doing a court of inquiry. He was evaluating it to determine whether a court of inquiry should be convened. And so, therefore, he didn't have to do anything. And so he ignored the motion to recuse and continued on his, you know, path of taking evidence favorable to Willingham and not hearing anything that was not favorable. And as a former criminal court of a court of criminal appeal a judge, he should have known that's not how it's done. When right. you file an appeal, either a direct appeal or even a post conviction claim. You present your evidence, and the state gets a chance to rebut your evidence. And then what's been presented by each side is evaluated and weighed to determine whether or not you get relief or not. And so uh, the district attorney, I think his name was Thompson, he appealed to the 10th Court of Appeals, which covers Travis County. And um, they found that Judge Baird should have either recused or referred the case, the motion to recuse, to the chief judge for him to determine whether or not Baird should be recused or not. And the Tenth Court of uh, Appeal basically ended the, the potential court of inquiry. Right. And then finally, in... I want to say 2011 or 2012, the Innocence Project on behalf of Willingham's mother and a cousin, or stepmother and a cousin, filed a disciplinary complaint against John Jackson, who was the original trial prosecutor. Okay. And um, they alleged an a secret deal with a witness, Johnny Webb, who had claimed that Willingham confessed to him. And they used a lot of evidence from the early to mid-1990s. They took an unsworn statement from him, Webb, and Webb went along with their plan after years of standing behind his testimony. And when uh, Walter Reeves came to visit Webb, Webb wouldn't cooperate with him because Walter Reeves, who was representing Willingham, wanted Webb to recant his testimony. Um, Webb apparently, while he was in prison, was being threatened by the Aryan Brotherhood on behalf of Willingham to recant his testimony. And that's according to what Willingham wrote to a supporter and to Judge Jackson in the intervening years. And so Judge Jackson did step in at one point, and uh, he did try to get Webb moved for his safety. And he felt it was his duty as a prosecutor to protect a state witness whose life was in danger. Um, 
So luckily, Judge Jackson's reply was filed or was made public on the Internet. And he wrote a a very detailed uh, response and included a lot of evidence, web, letters from Webb over the years that gave a complete picture of what was going on. The case against Jackson, one of the interesting things about Texas is dis- disciplinary pl- complaints against attorneys can be tried in a court before a jury. In most states, disciplinary is handled by a hearing commission or board, and the ultimate decision is made by the state's highest court. But in Texas, if you want your uh, – if, if the disciplinary board chooses to go after you, you can have a jury hear your case. Mm-hmm. And the case was heard, and John Jackson was acquitted of any wrongdoing in connection with the prosecution of Cameron Willingham. So a jury in Navarro County found no wrongdoing on the part of John Jackson. So that's strike three. Um, They haven't launched their latest effort, uh, but I'm sure there will be another one coming down the pike when somebody figures out another creative way to try and get a post-execution exoneration push through. Okay. And, you know, that's one of the ones, you know, that's one of the cases where I, I, I think that Innocence Project is losing sight of its claim to want truth. Because it's really not, it, it's not doing that. It right. certainly wasn't doing it in the Willingham case. They've lost soul. They've lost sight of what they want to do, or they've lost sight of what they're there to do, and they've, you know, just went completely. Which, yeah, right. It's, which is to help people who are actually innocent. And I mean, to hurt. be fair, to be fair, and I don't know how you feel about this, Lisa. So this is just coming from my perspective. I'm sure there are people who, unfortunately, for whatever reason, have been. Uh, you know, incarcerated incorrectly, but, you know, those are the people you need to focus your efforts on, not every single, you know, death penalty person. Right, and I, I think that is that is their agenda. They're trying to end the death penalty. Right. And so um, the ends justify the means. <clears throat> to them, it does correct. But let's go so, ahead and switch. Uh, let's go ahead and switch things up here. <laughs> you wanted to go back and uh, talk about Avery again, correct? Yes. Um, yeah, we we can we we had great interviews with uh, Michael Griesbach and Kenneth Kratz. Um, but I there's so much information in this case has been going on for so long that, um, you know, we just weren't able to get to as much of the meat and potatoes of the case or the cases uh, during those interviews just because of the time, not only their time that they were, you know, taking out of their schedules to 
be interviewed by us, but also the time that we have for our show, which is an o- only about two and a half hours if we're lucky. So um, I wanted right. to just cover some of the some of the information and a lot of it that doesn't appear anywhere in, in Making a Murderer, season one or season two. Right, right. So, well, I um, mean, you have it listed here to start at the beginning, which I think is still, you know, a great thing to do. Uh, with Avery, you know, he's an older gentleman. He was born in 62. I, I say older. I was born in 90 for uh, complete. Yeah, watch it, Michael. Complete and utter uh, full disclosure, I'm only uh, 28, going to be 29 this year. I had, oh my goodness, I had to start thinking about my age again. (laughs) But uh, the first thing I noticed, you know, in his early life section on Wikipedia, apparently his mother uh, said he went to an elementary school for uh, slower kids, and his intelligent quotient was uh, 70 and barely functioned in school. So. You know, is this one of those cases where this guy is uh, mentally challenged? I don't know. I'm not really uh, – I haven't really seen anything. I, I hadn't even seen that. I know they kind of mention it. Yeah, he's slow. He's not, you know, real smart. But, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know that that really is anything, any issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I, I, I mean, I, I guess we're supposed to feel sorry for him. I'm not sure. It was just the first thing I saw that popped off in his early life that I was like, hmm, okay, I see where this yeah. could possibly go. But, uh, you know, as far as that goes, you know, it, from what I understand, by all accounts, he was a uh, fairly functioning member of society when this happened. But I did want to point that out that uh, that was mentioned uh, that, you know, his lawyers did point out the fact that apparently he was um, had some troubles or what have you as far as that goes. You know, from from what I've seen of that family in making a murderer. You know, none of them are Rhodes Scholars. None of them were um, were readers or book people or uh, school people. You know, but still, they ran a successful business for many years. So they got some smart somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. I, and like I said, I don't, I don't know that that's really. I, I, I think sometimes. Reflexively, family members of people who have been accused of heinous crimes try to play that card to get sympathy and or to say, you know, he's not smart enough to have committed this crime. And I think that was one of the one of the uh, al- uh, avenues that Strang and Beauty wanted to pursue, that he wasn't smart enough to commit this crime. Well, right. <laughs> Smart can sometimes be subjective. Absolutely. I mean, you can be, you know, barely functioning. You know, it's one of those things, you know, uh, going back to West Memphis 3, just because it's a case that uh, that just 
jumps right out to me as far as, you know, a connection goes. Uh, and gosh darn it, I always forget this. Uh, Miss Kelly. Miss Kelly was, you mm-hmm. know, if you, you know, listen to any interview, you can tell he's not the uh, brightest crayon in the box. But, you know, they really played that fact up that he uh, that he was uh, mentally challenged. But they still were able to get a conviction uh, upon him just because you're mentally challenged. I mean, that doesn't mean that you're incapable of committing a crime. It just means Correct. that, you know, in some cases, according to a. According to uh, certain instances, you're just not eligible for certain uh, penalties. Correct? Am I right? Uh, correct. Am I understanding that correctly? Correct. Yes. Okay. Okay. <coughs> and then, uh, really, I don't see much on him until '82 when he married uh, Lori, and they had, of course, the four children: Rachel, Jenny, and uh, mm-hmm. Stephen, and Will. Yeah. And uh, but uh, you know, prior prior to that, though. He had uh, kind of a petty criminal history, although they did downplay uh, that. Um, he was charged with burglary. Yeah, and the burglary, burglary involved bar, correct? destruction of property. Okay. In addition to taking things after he broke in, there was destruction of property within the bar. And that mm-hmm. said just somebody who was pretty angry. About something, I don't know what. I don't know if he knows. Um, and then there was the cat. I mean, you know, you can downplay that. You can say, well, he isn't the one that actually threw it in the fire because, according to the statements, he got one of his friends to throw it on the fire after he and the friend doused the cat in oil and gasoline. It's still and, cruelty you know, to animals, whether you actually do it or whether you entice somebody else to do it. And, of course, that kind of ties in with the, the Hallbach case. Right. You know, he doesn't want to get his hands dirty, but he'll get somebody else to do the dirty work for him. Right. It's one of those things, you know, he, he later said, I was young and stupid and hanging out with the wrong folks. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. even if you're young and Correct. stupid, that's no, that's no excuse. What is that, what's that old uh, saying, ignorance is no excuse for um, – not following the law, that's not exactly mm-hmm. how yeah. uh, it goes, but you know, that's the right Ignorance is in a defense. Yeah. There you go. Ignorance, Ignorance is in a defense. I but, mean, uh, well, and, and know you know, he's, he's being dishonest because he's not saying, you know, we're standing around and I decided I wanted to see a cat burn up. Because according you know, to the statements of the people who were with him, that was how it started. He wanted to you see know, a cat. And this wasn't a stray cat. I think we talked about it. This was not a stray cat who was hanging around, bothering their chickens or biting and scratching him. This was their family pet cat. A cat that he knew. Right. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, I, I just from the fact that they were standing around a bonfire, I have a feeling the conversation mm-hmm. went to something, a little something like this. <laughs> Hold my bear, watch this. You know, one of those situations. Yeah. So, and he wasn't really a kid. I think he was about 20 by that time. Right. And um, he did do some jail time. Uh, he also had a, a history of violence toward women. 
there were allegations prior to him being wrongfully convicted. There were allegations of him uh, uh, being inappropriate with a cousin. Yeah, I was about to say. Exhibitionist behavior. And then he got mad because she was selling people. And so he runs her off the road and points a gun at her and tells her to get in his car. And God only knows what he would have done. Had her baby with her and said, I can't. My baby's in the car. Right. Right. Um, so uh, he was sentenced to six years for that one, right? Correct. And that was now, so concurrent. In fact, he was awaiting charges when he was arrested for the attempted murder and attempted rape or rape of PB on Lake Manitowoc. He right. was awaiting, awaiting trial on the incident with his cousin. There was also um, a. Uh, a minor niece at that time who had alleged that he had raped her. And then there was a, a woman, a a young woman who stayed with him and his wife who alleged that he raped her. Uh And yes, while Avery's defenders now make a lot of the fact that he was never charged with those crimes and has never been convicted of those crimes. I, believe my own personal opinion is those allegations were the reasons that when PB was beaten and raped on Lake Manitowoc that people thought it was Stephen Avery who did it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know a lot of a right. lot of things went wrong on that case and there were a lot of chances where uh perhaps they should have looked a little further to try and at least uh, identify, determine whether it was Avery or Allen who did it. And if you look at their mug shots, they look a lot alike. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, the ball was definitely dropped because he was innocent. But, again, you know, those things – they weren't picking on him just because they could. There were allegations of the same type of crimes that were being investigated, and they were only not pursued because they got him on PB's attack. Mm-hmm. Right, but right. He did plead guilty to the attack on his cousin, running a car off the road, and pointing the gun at her. And he was a felon in possession of a firearm in that incident. So he uh <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, he was just doing wrong all the way around. Yeah, right. And I then I think I think his role at Avery Salvage had always been less than he wanted it to be because I think his brother Chuck was kind of running it with his dad and Avery thought that he should be an equal partner. Mm-hmm. And then of course, when he comes back after being released from prison in 2003, he wasn't an equal partner. He was just working at the salvage yard. Right. For his brothers. Right. 
So that and, was uh, a, a bone of contention, probably. And, uh, you know, speaking of that salvage yard, that kind of brings in uh, Brendan Dassey. I believe I'm saying his name correctly. Correct, uh, yeah. He, he lived on a... Um, he lived on a property that was adjacent or associated with the salvage yard. Yes, the How whole family work? lived like, on did he property. Live on the salvage yard. It was a forty-acre property, or maybe mm-hmm. even more than forty acres. And um, you know, it, I mean, I don't know how your your family did. I know my family in Delaware. My great grandfather bought. <clears throat> a lot of property and then he gave two acres to each my dad and my cousins and my grandmother right. and my aunt uh, so they could all live near one another and so okay. in this case interestingly enough um, Avery's trailer was actually owned by someone not named Avery I think his name mm-hmm. was Johnson he may have been related to them in some way. I'm not sure. Right. Uh, but he was the owner of the of the trailer. So and I think the land the trailer a, was on. Uh, they basically live almost like a compound. A, yeah, compound. That was the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that's not how my situation was with my family, but uh, my girlfriend's family. Yeah, they kind of have that same situation. Um, they have a big piece of property and uh you know a good five of the a good five of the uh family members all live together on that piece of property so yeah i certainly mm-hmm. understand uh the point uh you're making there now uh you know there's quite an age deficiency in uh Dassey and Avery uh Dassey was just right. 16 uh whenever he was indicted uh, but once again same thing pops off uh he had an iq in the borderline deficiency range and was enrolled in special education classes um yes what was the Although i don't know actually i'm not sure that that's necessarily true mm-hmm. because i seem to recall that um he had i think some special education services but right. he was not um, – because that was one of the issues that they raised during his habeas claims. Right. And state post-conviction claims. And I think he had some special education services, but he was not full-time, 100% special education. He was in some mainstream. Yeah, I could be wrong. I I could be mistaken about that, but as I recall, like I said, he was not a hundred percent special ed. He was slow, and he called himself stupid and dumb. Uh, interestingly, Bobby, Brendan, and I believe the youngest one, Blaine, were all born while Avery was in prison. Their mother, Barb uh-huh. Yonda. Uh, who was married to their dad, Patrick Dassey, who I believe was pre- was present at the cat burning incident. Uh-huh. Um, they were all born while Avery was in prison for the 1983 right. <coughs> case. But okay. um, 
yeah, so they lived on the on the compound. And um uh Bobby, Brendan and Blaine all lived at home with their mom, Barb. Uh the older brother Brian, I think lived elsewhere, although I think there's another set of properties that are also related to the Avery family mm-hmm. in that general area. Okay. Okay. And um I I I'm wondering it's I think it's a complicated family tree. Right. So um, Avery uh nailed the state of Wisconsin with a wrongful conviction case. Is this the uh two thousand four uh civil yeah, suit? Yeah, he he filed a civil suit seeking thirty six million in damages, which was eighteen million one million for every year that he was allegedly wrongfully incarcerated mm-hmm. and uh eighteen million in punitive damages. Um and spoiler alert, I, he didn't get he, anywhere close to that. No. And he's not likely to have gotten thirty six million. First of all <clears throat> in order to get punitive damages, he would have had to prove that the sheriff and the DA Deliberately, intentionally did this. Deliberately, intentionally, you know, sent him away for a crime they knew he did not commit. Mm -hmm. And just from what I have read, that appears to be the case, but it's not entirely certain that it is. Right. And intent and knowledge are states of mind that are incredibly difficult to prove. To prove. Mm-hmm. They're proven by circumstantial evidence. And absent a statement to the effect that, yeah, I know he's not guilty, I don't give a shit, or words to that effect, you're going to have a hard time proving it. Um, right, now, Vogel right. did do something that's kind of close when employees in his office approached him and said, what about this Gregory Allen guy? We think he's the one who did it. And Vogel said, no, I checked him out. He was visiting his parole officer at the time. That now, one might have been <clears> – that, <throat> that might have proven it for Vogel. Is that kind of the same uh, aspect as to, uh, you know, what we're seeing going back to the case I know, going back to West Memphis 3? Is that kind of the same situation we're seeing with that where, you know, uh, they're trying to say, hey, y'all knew we were innocent, and y'all did it anyway. Y'all are a bunch of, of a better term, no. assholes. But not, they can't prove not it? Not at all. Not at all. There is nothing Eccles and Baldwin saying they knew we were innocent is mm-hmm. just propaganda. Because and honestly, it, it, I do believe I just propaganda. This, honestly, I do believe that you know the prosecution, for whatever reason, you know whether it be true or false, however you lay in that uh, debate, you know I truly do believe that they thought that they were the three that did it. Correct. And all of the circumstantial evidence that they had, that they had at the time, uh, supported that belief. And the problem that we've had is that attorneys and journalists 
have taken it on themselves to go into the media and say circumstantial evidence isn't sufficient to get a conviction for murder. Circumstantial evidence isn't sufficient to get a conviction for murder that carries the death penalty. You've got to have something more. You've got to have something more. A lot like Dan Stidham, even after Miss Kelly confessed <coughs> in February twenty uh, in February of nineteen ninety four, Miss Kelly met with him at the prison and confessed and swore on a Bible during his confession. And Stidham still needed something more, which led to the discovery of the neck of the Evan Williams bottle and the phone call to Vicki Hutchison confirming that on the day of the murders, she bought a bottle of Evan Williams whiskey for Miss Kelly. And that still wasn't enough for Dan Stidham to believe that his client was guilty. Right. You know, right. Because it was all circumstantial. Circumstantial is actually probably in a lot of cases stronger because the only direct evidence is eyewitness evidence. Even forensic evidence is circumstantial because you can't prove when that evidence came to be there. It could have been there weeks before the murder. It could have been there days before the murder. You know, the person could have left the evidence there and left while the victim was still alive. It's only circumstantial. <clears throat> okay. But uh, so so he yeah he was he wasn't really likely to get that much. He would have gotten several million dollars, likely, more likely than not. Uh, and during the late summer and into the fall of 2005, uh, different witnesses in the in the civil case were being deposed. They deposed his cousin who he threatened, ran off the road and threatened with a firearm. Uh, right. They deposed the deputy who interviewed PB in the hospital, Judy Dvorak. Now, interestingly, I was listening to a former FBI profiler and a former Scotland Yard behavioral profiler on a uh, podcast and they were talking about the Avery case. And this former Scotland Yard profiler identified Judy <coughs> Pardon me. Dvorak as the DA's wife. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's example of how the press gets it wrong and sometimes the press gets it wrong and then the people purporting to know about the case get it wrong. You can say the same thing about me, except that, you know, my information, the majority of it comes from court opinions and court filings. Uh so but I, I, I could get it wrong too. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll admit that. But I mean, you know, Judy Dvorak was a a reserve deputy who interviewed P B at the hospital. Um, and then they had also uh, de- deposed Andy Colburn and Jim Link. Colburn and Link were not employed at Manitowoc Sheriff's Office at the time of the original rape investigation. Right. <clears throat> but I think uh, Andy Colburn was still in the Air Force, mm-hmm. and Jim Link was still 
up in Detroit working for the Detroit PD or, you know, some county in, in Michigan. And okay. when uh, Andy Colburn started in 1990s, he was a jailer at the jail, and he was at his desk one day, and the phone rang, and he answered it. Pardon me, which was his job. And a detective from uh, Brown County, Wisconsin called and said something along the lines of, we have a guy here, we've arrested him for a rape. He says he committed a rape on at, at Lake Manitowoc and some other guy's in jail for it. And Andy Colburn, Andrew Colburn, who was not an investigator, transferred the call to a jailer. He didn't write a report at that time. Of course, what is there to write a report about? I received a call that some guy committed a rape in Brown County and says he committed a rape at Lake Manitowoc and another guy's in jail for it. Right. And there's no evidence that he ever heard the name Gregory Allen or Stephen Avery. Right. Um, But when Avery was released and news, you know, went around that Gregory Allen was in prison for a rape in Brown County, I think Mr. Colburn (coughs) – Sergeant Colburn put two and two together, and then he wrote a report about the phone call he had received. Uh And that is portrayed as some kind of violation, Um, but it's not. I mean, he wasn't an investigator. He had no power to do anything with the information, and he forwarded the call to someone else. And so if Avery had a problem, he needs to go to whomever the call was forwarded to and look at them. And apparently prior to writing the report in 2003, he discussed uh, – Sergeant Colburn discussed uh, this with uh, Jim Link, who was Lieutenant Link. And Lieutenant Link is the one who said, yeah, go ahead and write a report. <coughs> now, if they right, really were right. trying to hide something, no reports would have ever been written in 2003. Right. So I mean, he ends up four hundred thousand. Is that the correct number? That's the number. Correct. I after he was after he was arrested, that's that's getting a little bit ahead. Uh, oh, I'm taking another lozenge. Hopefully that'll stop the coughing. Um. So and there's there's a lot of claims that Link and Colburn were defendants, and that is just simply not true. Mm-hmm. <coughs> 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 the, um, Do we need to take our break a little is, early, Lisa? Um, yeah, you know what? Let's go ahead and do that real quick because I feel like a fit's coming on. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and take and a if, break, ladies. If, if covering my mic is not stopping it, mute right. me. Yeah, and then, okay, definitely. And then you can talk to yourself for a while. 
Okay, okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back with more clear and convincing. We're talking about Wisconsin versus Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to check back with Lisa. Miss Lisa, is everything better? Did you get your coughing out? I think I got it out, but there's no telling. <laughs> I have been up every night for the past, since the Friday. Was that the 11th? Because every time I start to fall asleep, I have to cough. Oh, of course. And that wakes me up. That would always. So poor me. Right, so, right. Um, I just, you know, finally the last thing on the on the two thousand the two thousand four civil suit, Lang mm-hmm. and Colburn were not defendants. The defendants were the Manitowoc County, um, the sheriff at the time of the arrest and conviction, Thomas Kasorik, and former district attorney. 
Dennis Vogel. Those were the only defendants. Uh, Avery had not named Jim Lanks or Andrew Colburn. And really, there is no basis for him to have named them. Mm-hmm. Because they weren't there at the time of the original investigation. And what they knew, again, did not amount to anything would have changed the uh, the conviction. Because, again, you know, Lank Colburn is told, we have a guy who says he committed a rape at Lake Manitowoc and another guy's in jail. Right. There's no time frame. There's nothing that identifies Avery. You know, it, it, it's just, it's too speculative. But one of the allegations is that Lang and Colburn were facing personal damages or personal liability, and therefore they wanted to frame him, and that's just not true. Also, uh, I think we discussed this, the civil suit, there was one insurance company that was uh, trying to get out of being responsible, but the insurance company for Manitowoc County was covering everything and would mm-hmm. cover any judgment. Okay. So nobody nobody was going to have money coming out of their pockets uh, in the event that Stephen Avery won the lawsuit anyway. And what he would have won is entirely speculative because you just don't run, know. Running concurrently, <coughs> concurrently or something, mm-hmm. running at the same time as this lawsuit, uh, Teresa Holbach disappears October 31st, correct? correct? This is at the correct. same time. Uh, her last known appointment was with Avery. Uh, at, Correct. Uh, at the auto salvage yard, uh, so she could photograph uh, her sister's minivan for sale. Uh, His sister's minivan. Now, interestingly, I don't know how I don't know how in depth we got. Mm-hmm. Um, Barb Yonda did not want to sell the minivan. She planned on one of her kids driving the minivan, but Stephen Avery wanted to put it in Auto Trader. So he said, right. I want to put it in on a trader. I'll pay for it, and I'll handle everything. And I think Barb said, okay, fine, whatever, Stephen, and let him do it, even though she had no intention of selling the van. Okay. Okay. So, um, and when he called Auto Trader to make the appointment, he didn't say, this is Stephen Avery, and give his phone number he said this is Beyonda, and he gave Barb's phone number. Okay. And making a murderer makes it look like Teresa Avery still knew where she was going, but there's actually, when you play the full content of the message that making a murderer plays only a snippet of, she's actually calling saying, I can't come see you. If I don't know where I'm going, please call me back. And that was on Barb Yonda's machine. Right. Uh, Stephen Avery also gave a a statement on the 31st to a friend of his brother saying the photographer had never shown up. And October 31st, the first time he takes off work to deal with Auto Trader, 
is October 31st. Okay. Okay. So the first thing that jumps out to me that kind of confuses me, and maybe you can explain this, maybe it's because she's an adult and it's, you know, I know you have to wait a certain <coughs> time to report somebody missing, but why did it take four days to report her missing? She lived in her own place uh, with a roommate, Scott Lodorn, and they kind of had separate schedules. And, um, so nobody would have missed her, quote unquote. So yeah, um, and I think she, you know, she was in contact with her family, but it wasn't, you know, like if she had been scheduled to do something with her mother on November first and didn't show up, her mother would have reported her missing on November first. Right. Okay. And I think it was actually the third when Scott kind of realized, like maybe she hadn't even been home in days that he caught her. No, actually, it was her business partner um, who contacted Scott and said, where's Teresa? Because she had missed some appointments. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, that was when Scott it, called her mother, and her mother in- initiated the missing persons report, and that was in Calumet County. Now, I'm just saying, obviously, they're going to be a little bit trigger happy or or a little bit trigger shy on this case. But as soon as you hear Avery Salvage, were these guys immediately, uh, you know, locked in on Steven or did they go uh, or were they kind of shy about it? Because I do see, you know, the first thing they did was they did go to the salvage yard. Right. They went and interviewed but they also went to the other people in Manitowoc County that she had seen mm-hmm. that day. And okay. they interviewed them. So, you know, that wasn't, they weren't just focusing on Avery. Now, interestingly, Avery, you know, he immediately started saying, if they find any evidence, it's because the cops planted it because they're trying to get me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you got you to gotta kind of wonder... Um, because even on the 3rd of November, he's he's accusing Manitowoc County of planning. And one of the things with the planning that always has always failed for me, or the reason it's failed for me, they would have had to have these things. They would have had to have seen her. Right. And I, I frankly don't think that police are going to burn a body and plant the bones I think if police are going to frame somebody, they're going to leave the body whole and intact and easily identifiable. True. True. And okay. They're not going to create more work for themselves. They're going to make it as open shut as possible. <clears throat> well, well, you know, burning the body leaves a question. Is it really her? Right. True. You know, uh, it, it's just kind of uh, counterintuitive. And basically, on November 3rd, um, Andrew Colburn, who did have a kind of a rapport with the family, he did go out there and he did talk to Stephen Avery. He talked to Earl. He talked to Chuck. uh, He talked to the parents. You know, he talked to other people out there just to see if anybody had seen Teresa Halbach, if they had seen her leaving, if they knew where she was going when she left. She'd said anything about her plans or anything like that. 
mean, that's called pretty standard operating procedure. Uh, mm-hmm. But it wasn't like they focused on the Avery's because she had two other appointments in Manitowoc in that general area that day, and they talked to those people as well. Right. Right. So they were basically retracing her steps. Oh, well. Not necessarily okay. focusing on any one individual. Right. Right. Now, I, I and, mean, just putting myself in their mindset, though, what I'm getting at is I'm sure they had to be a little bit later. Though. <laughs> well, you know, this, <laughs> this isn't going to look exactly great for us to go out here and interview this guy who's already got a, you know, I'm I, all I'm saying is I'm sure there was a little bit of uh, a little bit of nervousness going into that situation. I don't know necessarily that there would be because you know really they're not doing anything wrong. Mhm. You've got a woman who hasn't been seen for 3 days who was in Manitowoc County, who went to several places on the last day she was seen, her phone hasn't been used, her bank accounts haven't been accessed. Uh, there's no no clues as to where she might be. And so they have to retrace their steps. I don't think there's any reason for them to feel uncertain or uh, anything about doing that. That's their job. That's what they have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, just right, because it right. was Stephen Avery, uh, you know, because, again, it, it could have, I mean, something could happen with anybody on the property. And they weren't singling out Stephen Avery. Uh-huh. They were talking to everybody. They talked to Chuck. They talked to Earl. They talked to Daddy. They talked to Mama. They talked to Barb. They talked to Brendan. They talked to Bobby. Uh-huh. You know, they talked to Blaine. I mean, they 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 talked to everybody on the property, not just Stephen Avery. It's Stephen Avery that turned the narrative into singling me out, trying to frame me for something I didn't do. They already did it once. They could do it again. But really, mm-hmm. I mean, in reality, they didn't frame him for some. They didn't frame him. There was very little evidence. But he got convicted. Right. Right. Um, They didn't plant blood. They didn't plant fluids to link him. But, you know, as Michael Griesbach said, he's he's surprised they got a conviction because they had little to nothing. Unlike what's about to happen. Uh, so November 5th, uh, her vehicle was partially, uh, obstructed, correct? So, like, uh, did he correct. cover it under some trees? What's the, uh, what, well, what did that mean, partially concealed? What happened was, uh, one of Teresa's cousins, who was also a private investigator, and her daughter, the, at that point in time, Nobody knew where Teresa was, and there were citizen search parties uh, from Calumet County and probably other people in the area who were just trying to help. And they were looking for any signs of her vehicle, her, you know, whatever, 
uh, had happened to her. And they went to the Avery Salvage Yard because that's the last place she was seen. And they asked, and Earl gave them permission to search the property. And so they started at the back, and in the back near the crusher, they found Teresa's RAV4. It's like a teal color, and it had, you know, there were there was a car hood. There were, uh, I think, pieces of wood. There were branches covering the top and covering the the hood because it was it was an unusual color. It would have stood out. Right. And I believe that there had been helicopters or or air aerial searches going on. Now, the Avery family, with the exception of Earl, had all gone up north to a cabin the family had. So Stephen Avery wasn't even there at the time. And, um, yeah, it was discovered hidden toward the back of the property near the car crusher. And, uh, again, it looked like somebody had attempted to disguise it from anybody searching from the air. I think it was also parked in in a way that kind of jammed it up against a tree or something. So, you know, it was parked like somebody was trying to hide it. So, obviously, there's a bunch of DNA, a bunch of blood uh, found on the vehicle, and we're going to find out who belongs to here for too long. But uh, there was blood on the inside well as the outside uh, of the vehicle. So, I mean, automatically, this becomes a problem. Right. Uh, and I may be incorrect. There may not have been any blood on the outside. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm looking at this, and I don't know how that got there. I don't know what Pat referred to. But there was blood found. There was in the back cargo area. There was a transfer pattern, and that was later determined to be Teresa's blood type or Teresa's blood. Okay. And then there was blood in the front on the dashboard by the key, a CD case, and I think on another couple of spots around the driver's seat, um, which was later found determined to be Stephen Avery's. Uh, Right. Right, and that's exactly what I did see, uh, that, you know, the bloodstains in the interior matched Avery's. Uh, so I'm assuming there was some sort of struggle as far as this goes, and that's why Avery ended up believing. Well, we we don't know. We know that Avery had a deep cut on the middle finger of his right hand. But we don't know when or how that cut was. Okay. He he okay. he may have. I mean, he could have cut it when he was detaching the battery from under the, you know, when he was lifting the hood of the car. He may right. have cut it under the hood of the car while he was detaching the battery. Okay. And then not so even realize he was bleeding. Right when he. When he turned the key, uh, either to take the key to get the key out of the ignition after he moved the car there, 
and he would need the key in order to get the car to the crusher. Right, right. And he disconnected the battery, I think because he was afraid of, like, onboard GPS. Mm-hmm. It was a 1999. But if there was a, a any kind of tracking or GPS in the vehicle, then it could have been found. But if you disconnect the battery, that doesn't work. Right. Right. <clears throat> Although... I had low jack, and they said, don't worry. If the battery's disconnected, we're still going to find your car. <laughs> so oh, That's interesting. Maybe it's got a backup power reserve or something. Right. And then the hood latch is actually out of place. They did not swap the hood latch until after Daffy's confession. So we're going to leave. We're going to take that out real quick, too. I'm just going to go ahead and scratch my head at that one before we just move on past that. What the hell are you doing not swapping it automatically? Well, they didn't have any information uh, as to whether or not Avery had been under the hood or not. They didn't know. I got you there, but there's I mean, you can assume, you can kind of, no, no, no. What they found on the hood, hood latch was epithelial cells, not blood. No, what I'm saying is, if you find blood on a vehicle, isn't your first thing going to be, hey, let me at least swab this for prints or something? Shit. Well, well, somebody didn't do their job. You know, some sometimes, I don't know, crime analysts, it's, it's, sometimes I scratch my head at why they didn't do things. But mm-hmm. you have to remember that um, you don't want to go, I know people say collect everything, and figure it out later, but that actually is a drain on resources. Right. And, yeah, they should have they should have swabbed the hood latch, but they would have had epithelial DNA, maybe identified as Avery's, um, but, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes I would like to ask the... the you know, I would prefer to ask the analyst, well, why didn't you do this at that time? Mm-hmm. Because right. I mean, that, that was just something that jumped off when it, you said it, it is, that they kind of ignored it. I was like, uh, But, you know, you, you can't – you actually don't you, – you swab obvious evidence like blood stains, mm-hmm. but you don't necessarily take a swab and go all over the vehicle and see what you get. Because you may end up getting, a you know, twenty profiles, and only one of them is related to your crime. Right, right. And you know what? We might want to talk. We might want to table this discussion for when mm-hmm. we interview Megan Clement in March. Okay. Okay. Because, yeah, absolutely. Um, she is a DNA expert. And mm-hmm. she may be able to enlighten us on why sometimes what we think should have been done was not done until later. Mm-hmm. Was not done right away like we think it should be. Sometimes it may just be a a a, a, a situation of well, I had no not, no information that anything under the hood was touched except the right. battery cables. 
So I didn't swab under the hood. Yeah. Makes sense. I don't know. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the Because like I said, you, you want to. Some, and sometimes you don't know who touched where. You don't want to mm-hmm. get unrelated, you know, unidentified profiles that have nothing to do with the murder. You, right. you don't want the profile of the mechanic that chase. last worked on the car and go off on a wild goose chase. Right, and then waste, like you said, time and resources that could be spent someplace else. Right. Yeah, I can kind of right. understand that. I just it kind of doesn't hit the so, ear right when you said that. But but once so, once Dassey said he went under the hood, they swabbed the hood latch. They found his epithelial DNA. So automatically, as soon as they find the blood, the murder investigation begins. I'm assuming they switch from a missing person to a murder investigation. Yes, uh, I think once the vehicle was discovered with the blood. And and it was a transfer pattern, appeared to be from her hair, uh, that, you know, something had happened to her and she had been, her body had been in the back of that vehicle. And also during, um, during that search, they had both scent dogs and cadaver dogs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the scent and cadaver dogs, you know, played a part in, in some of that. No, I got to ask once again, just because of what's going on, you know, in conjunction with what's going on with the investigation. Once again, are they uh, are they gun shy about, you know, him being the prime suspect right off the bat, even though the car was found in his property? Well, I yeah, I don't think that they're necessarily gun shy, but I don't think at that point. I, I don't think until they got the DNA back. From inside the RAV4, the blood on the in the front seat area. I don't think that they were looking at Avery alone. I think that they were, you know, looking at Earl, Chuck, Daddy, Mama, Parb, Brian, Brendan, Bobby, Blaine, whomever. Right. It was once right. they got the the blood, uh, the results of the blood. Uh, testing DNA testing that they were able to say okay it, it was Stephen Avery. It was Stephen. Yeah, and, and okay. Yeah, as we know, there was a conflict of interest with Manitowoc County. However, um, Manitowoc County deputies did help as far as manpower went, but they, I think use deputies who weren't involved in the 1985 investigation uh-huh. so right, that, right. Uh, you know, that, that and, and those deputies were always accompanied by somebody from Calumet County. So what's the uh, conflict of interest situation? <laughs> what's going on with that? Is well, that because the, of the, the lawsuit? Manitowoc County felt because of the lawsuit that there was a potential conflict of interest for any any official in Manitowoc County to be involved. And so Uh the DA, the sheriff, uh, the sheriff warned off the corner, although there was some flack about that, but I think there was a a contentious relationship among law enforcement and the coroner to begin with. 
And so, you know, not letting the coroner for Manitowoc County uh, respond to the to the Avery Salvage Yard crime scene caused some issues for her. Um, but again, you know, they're trying to prevent an allegation that Manitowoc County is going after Stephen Avery because of this lawsuit. I would just like to point something out, you know, expanding upon your point. I've not watched Making a Murderer on uh, Netflix, in case anybody can't tell. <coughs> I'm completely and utterly clueless as far as a lot of this stuff goes. Uh-huh. But, I mean, just listening to uh, how they're going about the investigation and everything, I'm just saying it sounds like they're covering their bases pretty well and making sure that there's no way that this yeah. guy can come back and say, hey, we got you screwed me again. I'm just throwing that right. out They And they did, and they brought in uh, Wisconsin Department of Justice as well because Calumet is a, a fairly small jurisdiction. And so the lead investigators were Mark Wieger, who was with Calumet County, and Thomas Passbender, who was with the Wisconsin Department of Justice Criminal Investigation Division. Um, they weren't with Manitowoc County. They had no affiliation with Manitowoc County. They had no dog in the fight between Stephen Avery and Manitowoc County. Right. And they right. took lead, and they took point with the investigation. Um, so, and again, you know, I just have to reiterate, in order for law enforcement to plant all this evidence, they would have to have it. So they would have had to have found Teresa Avery's Teresa Hallbach's vehicle, hidden it on the salvage yard without anybody noticing. Mm-hmm. Planted blood in the vehicle, not only from Avery but from Teresa. Right. And then would have had to have her key to her vehicle and her body. Well, I mean, things which are they burned it up. Things that you keep bringing it up, I am going to uh, go ahead and address that because I did see, you know, later on what uh, Avery's attorney said. They discovered that an evidence box containing a vial of uh, his blood was col- from that was collected in 96, uh, what had been unsealed in a puncture hole was visible. Um, is that what they're That's saying a- it was planted, was the blood? Well, that was, that was Jerry Buting's aha moment for the cameras in making a murderer. In reality, all purple top tubes, in fact, all blood collection tubes have a hole in the top. How else is blood going to get into the tube? It does not go in by osmosis. The phlebotomist doesn't look at your arm and look at the tube and think real hard and cross your fingers and pray and have blood by osmosis, go from your arm into the tube. It doesn't right. happen. You're, you get a catheter put into your vein. The tube is attached, like and there's a hole punched in the top. Not if you're not a big baby. Hey, you know and, what? I'm a big baby. So. <laughs> and then they release the little tourniquet, and the blood goes into the tube. Um, however... In those purple top tubes is a substance called EDTA. Right. And it's actually and a substance that's in hand lotion. It's in detergent. 
It's in a, a lot of things in our environment. It doesn't occur naturally in the human body. Um, but it also serves in the blood collection tubes to prevent coagulation of the blood. So then uh, with that being said, and I don't want to get too much into the trial until we get there, but uh, they put somebody on the stand that said that uh, even though it was negative for that, it, uh, it he was saying that the results were inconclusive. How can you get negative no. and inconclusive? <laughs> I'm confused. What happened was the state put on an expert who did testing on three samples. Probably the volume of those samples was um, within the parameters of their equipment, whereas other samples didn't have enough volume for them to test. And he tested, and he did not find any EDTA in the samples he tested. Avery presented an expert that said, well, he may have gotten no EDTA because the levels were too low for his testing to detect. And so he didn't really rule out EDTA. He just didn't find it because there wasn't enough there. Is it possible? I, I don't know. We could talk to um, Ms. Megan about that too. Okay. <laughs> I was about to say, is this um, some, an argument that but could I, I think No, I think that was, just, that was just the defense's way to try to rebut his testimony that ruled out EDTA. Okay. And we had EDTA okay. claims. And Kevin Cooper. Mm-hmm. And there were EDTA claims in O.J. Simpson. Was there really? I don't remember mm-hmm. that. Yeah, because they claimed. Well, I knew he said they, they claimed, claimed that LSD planted. Yeah. Yeah. So. I knew he said they planted, but I didn't know that they got into mm-hmm. the EDTA thing. So we kind of got off on a wild goose chase. Um, I know <laughs> we do. We but, digress. Uh, let's yeah, we digress. Let's go ahead and talk about the burn pit where the uh, where Teresa's body was eventually found, or her charred remains were found. Uh, what's the story right. with this? Like, was it found all together? Was it mostly ash? What's the story? Well, you skipped over the searching cadaver dogs. Oh shoot, I'm sorry. And they had uh, one of the things they did with it was that they brought in some dogs who were scent dogs who would have been looking for Teresa's live scent. And then they brought in cadaver dogs who would look for scent of death anywhere it may be. Interestingly enough, one of the cadaver dogs uh, hit on Avery's bathroom. Now, the cadaver dogs also hit on vehicles that had been that that had been involved in pretty substantial collisions and sustained severe damage, and had blood and body fluids in the cars on the salvage yard. So they were finding the scent of decay, more or less, of blood or or body tissue but they hit on Avery's bathroom. Search dogs went from the front of the yard to Avery's door who were picking up live scent. Right. Okay. Um, So they they went around, and and one of the places the cadaver dogs hit 
was the burn pit behind Avery's trailer. And that's where um, bones that were, some I think were conclusively identified as belonging to Teresa, and some could not be conclusively identified as Teresa's, but they were from a woman in Teresa's age range. And I think they said the the bones that they found between Avery's burn barrel, the burn pit, and the Daffy burn barrel were representative of bones, each of the bones within the human body. But they were only bone fragments. There were no intact bones. They didn't find an intact femur. I think they did find some pelvic bones in a quarry adjacent to the salvage property. But I don't know whether it was ever determined that those bones were even human. Right, right. And then so, Teresa's go ahead. Uh, PDA, her phone, and her camera components of it were found in Stephen Avery's burn barrel. And one of his nephews, I believe it was Blaine, testified that he saw Stephen putting a white bag into the fire on the afternoon of October 31st. So, yeah, that doesn't help him at all. (laughs) So, yeah. What's the quarry? So, and then the next thing is the key, which was the key to Teresa's vehicle. Uh Uh-huh. That was found in the bedroom in Avery's trailer while Sergeant Coburn was searching a book, a little bookcase. One of those, you know, three-shelf, cheap-ass bookcases. Right, Walmart bookcases, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Got one sitting Um, right over here. (laughs) And um, he, they had done, there were numerous, quote, they're, they're represented as searches, but they weren't necessarily searches. They made entry into the trailer. On several occasions, the first few times, they went in for specific things. They went in for a serial number on the computer so that they get a warrant for the computer. They uh, initially, when the vehicle was found on the 5th, they went into the trailer to look for any obvious signs of Teresa having been there or being there. But they didn't really do a top-to-bottom search of the trailer at that time. And I think they started that in the evening and stopped when it started raining because they didn't want to destroy evidence on the way in and out of the – from the trailer to the vehicle where they were transporting that evidence. So, um, But on – I think it was the 8th, uh, Andrew Coburn, Lieutenant Lank, and a Calumet deputy were in Avery's bedroom – Executing a search warrant, looking for his porn. And right, right. While apparently Sergeant Coburn found some pictures of Avery's ex-wife and his girlfriend Jody, who was currently serving at that time, serving a sentence for drunk driving, 
uh, he found some pictures that he perhaps did not really approve of. And I think he was a little mm, disgusted. And so when he was putting things back into the bookcase, he was just kind of shoving things in and he was moving the bookcase around and a key fell from the back where it could have been pretty, you know, well hidden and fell onto the floor. And Lieutenant Link came into the room and noticed the key on the floor and said, there's a key. Now, I think we talked about this briefly with either Mr. Griesbach or Mr. Kratz. If I were going to be planting evidence against someone, I would not be the one to find it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely I would not. Plant that it, probably would look fishy. And I would leave, and then I would let someone else find it. And again, it, it still, you know, it still brings where would Lank or Colburn have gotten Teresa's key? Yeah. The key, there's all these claims about it being a valet key or a, a an extra key. Uh, it's called a sub-key, which makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but it, Teresa had been given a lanyard with a key fob that kind of clips into the lanyard. And she okay. kept her car key on that fob, and she had the lanyard. The lanyard was locked in the RAV4 in the console next to between the driver and passenger seat. And the key that was found in Avery's bedroom was attached to the fob that was the mate to the lanyard. Mm -hmm. There's no evidence that she had two lanyards. There's no evidence that she had two key fobs. Mm -hmm. The evidence is that she was given a single lanyard and a single key, key fob that went together. And the key that was found Additionally, the key that was found had Avery's DNA, and it was epithelial DNA, not blood DNA. So where would Colburn or Lank have gotten epithelial DNA to plant onto that key? Right. Where would they have gotten that key? I mean, I know it's very easy to say, they found the car in Teresa's body somewhere, but it's very easy to say that, but you've got to prove it. Right. Makes sense. You know, I mean, it takes more than just flapping gums. And that's why all this planting stuff has never really held any weight with me and very rarely does with me because generally they're long on scenarios of how it could have been done, but short on exactly who it, who did it and a plausible right. explanation for how they did it. Right, right. There's no evidence to back up your claim. You're just throwing it out there willy-nilly. Correct. Because a lot of people believe that police are out to plant evidence and wrongfully convict people, but they do it every day, all the time, because they can. 
And while right. I'll admit there are cases where that has been proven to be the case, that's been proven to be true, in most cases, doesn't pan out. Right. And I think there are a lot of cases where detectives have been unfairly accused of planting things and framing people when in reality they were just wrong in the conclusions they drew. And I think there are also cases out there where people who were guilty were able to uh, present plausible arguments and alternatives to the evidence against them and were able to secure their own their release. Mm-hmm. And I I think that's what Zellner's in the habit of doing. And I think that's what she's doing with Avery. She's just throwing as many theories out there as she can to see if one might stick. Right. So but um See, and then there's a lot. There is other evidence. Stephen Avery made a lot of inconsistent statements. One of the statements that he made to uh, his brother Chuck and a friend of his, who had been hunting on the property on October 31st, was that the photographer never showed up. Mm-hmm. And then when he found out that apparently Bobby Dassey had seen her. He changed it, and he said, oh, yeah, well, she came, and she took pictures, and then she left. Right. And then when he found out that somebody had seen him, or they had found a a receipt from Auto Trader in his trailer. So then it became, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She came, and she took pictures, and I went over the car, and she gave me the receipt, and I gave her the money, and she left. Mm -hmm. If you find any evidence from me, it was planted. The cops pointed it, they wrongfully convicted me, and they're doing it again. Hmm. Um, and then Dassey, you know, he he made one statement, I think, early in November when they were initially investigating. And he didn't talk about a bonfire with his uncle. He didn't talk about cleaning the garage. He didn't talk about anything. But then in the months after the murder, Brandon Dassey started having some crying jags and being upset and losing weight. And one of his cousins was concerned. And so she talked to someone, and they talked to someone, and eventually that brought the police to talk to Brendan. Right. And they felt... Even initially, they felt he knew something, but not that he was necessarily involved. And I I haven't watched the entire questioning, but um, I I plan to do it someday. Um, Mm -hmm. But they were very calm, very quiet. They asked him leading questions, but, you know, Brendan's not a communicative person. Right. And you can see that even when he's talking to his mom or members of his family. I mean, they have to kind of ask him leading questions to get information out of him. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, but he eventually he was interviewed, I believe, at the station on March 1st, and that was when he confessed to being involved. And that's when he told uh, uh, investigators that Avery had gone under the hood as the RAV4, which led them to swab the hood latch, which led Mm -hmm. to a discovery of epithelial DNA, which is from skin cells. Okay. And I know Mr. Kratz and some other commentators have referred to it as sweat DNA, but it's not. A, they're not necessarily sweat. It may be sweat. The sweat may be the vehicle at which the epithelial, you know, that is the vehicle uh, which causes the shedding of the epithelial cells in an abundant quantity. Right. Um, and I don't know if sweat may carry some some nuclear DNA. Another thing we need to talk to Megan Clement about. <laughs> I'm seeing the note. I'm noticing the mounting question. <laughs> Lisa, you may want to avoid laughing. You were doing good, and then you started laughing. I I know. Mm. I know that was my fault. But um, <laughs> but the thing is, though, the uh, you know the police could not have planted epithelial DNA. Right, absolutely not. What are you going to do? Because, scrape the dude's skin and be like, "Oh, let me place this here." Right, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so he ended up confessing, and then when Buting was wanting to use. The blood vial. You might want to mute me real quick. Okay. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna go ahead and uh, we're gonna go ahead and mute Miss Lisa. We'll be back with her here in a minute. We're gonna take a quick break, play some music, and we'll be right back with uh, Claire and Convincing. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe Miss Lisa is doing better. Miss Lisa? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm back. I'm trying not to laugh anymore. No more jokes. No more jokes. Okay. Um. So yeah, in in response to Jerry Buting wanting to wanting to bring in that test tube, that uh, tube of blood, and say, look at this hole. See, they they drew blood out. Um. The the, the state proposed getting ED, EDTA testing on right. the evidence samples to determine whether the blood was planted from a purple top tube. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, of course, Buting and Strang uh, didn't want to have that come into the case at all because it's kind of blowing their, you know, their defense. And they mm-hmm. argued that the testing was not scientifically accepted. Of course, this is 2007 by this time. And uh, the testing, the EDTA testing Kevin Cooper was done in 2006 or 2005 or 2006, I believe. Okay. This was done by the FBI. And um, the judge, you know, kind of said, well, you want to bring the tube in. They have a right to say that it could have been from this tube. So right. um, the that was brought in. But again, Buting, that was the aha moment for uh, making a murderer. They mm-hmm. also had, I think, a, an affidavit from the person who drew the blood from Avery as part of his uh, challenge to his conviction in the 1985 case. And she's like, I'm the one who put the hole in the tube. Um, right. So uh, it was it was a it was a bluff. Uh, but really, what sealed it for them was when the EDA testing came in, where they found no EDTA in the three samples that they tested. Mm-hmm. And you know, Avery brought in a a, a quality control person. To say, well, they didn't do, you know, they didn't do this, and they didn't say why they did this, and you know, to kind of criticize the the process and the methodology, but not really able to address the results or refute the results. And so right. during the trial, you know, the prosecution case, they had the vehicle being found, the, the burn barrels, the electronics all within, you know, feet of Avery's residence. Um, they had the the October 10th incident, the disguising his himself, uh, the inconsistent statements about whether she showed up, whether he interacted her, with her when she did show up, and those stories changed. And that, you know, that in and of itself can be consciousness of guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, he tells one person she never came, tells somebody else, oh, yeah, she came, she took pictures, she left, I never talked to her, and then told someone else, yeah, she came, she took pictures, I went out, I got a receipt, I gave her the money, she left. Okay. Those are consciousness of guilt because his story's changing. And he, you know, his story changed as to how long he interacted with her. <clears throat> so... And the defense case really was just the 1985 wrongful conviction was the more or less the the whole defense. 
they did it once, they're doing it again. They don't have enough evidence because they never found any evidence in Avery's trailer to place Teresa in the trailer. I don't think that's particularly um, noteworthy. He could have done a lot. And Dassey even said he, he got rid of the bedding. Teresa's body was wrapped up in the bedding. Right. Which was burned in the burn pit. You know. Um, so, <clears throat> and he had from October 31st, the second, the first, second, third of November, before anybody came, and there was evidence that he had pretty thoroughly cleaned the trailer in that time. Um, you know, the car being found where it was found near the crusher, but he never got a chance to crush it. And when they went up north, I think what happened was they went up north. He was going to come back on Saturday afternoon and do it Saturday afternoon while everybody else was gone. But it was found at like 10 o'clock that morning. Mm-hmm. And um, so he, he was convicted. The jury considered, you know, the defense did pr- put on a pretty good case, and they did challenge the state's case at every uh, and they did the best that they could to refute it, but there was just too much evidence. And you can you can maybe cast doubt on one or two pieces of evidence, but you can't cast doubt on every single piece. You know, even if there's uh, some impropriety dealing with the car. You still that doesn't that doesn't change his blood found inside the car that he claims to have never been inside of, and it's right. got no EDTA, so it could have been planted. And so he was convicted, convicted, and I believe he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility mm-hmm. of parole. Wisconsin is not a death penalty state. Okay. Okay. And one of the other sad parts about this case. Mm-hmm. Brendan Dassey's participation was really more just because he seemed to idolize Avery and maybe was in fear of Avery. And the worst part in this whole case is Avery manipulated everybody in the family to keep Brendan from testifying against him. Wow. Because I think what happened was Avery wanted to beat the thought he would beat the case. Mm-hmm. And so they kept Brendan from making a deal and testifying against Avery. Had Brendan made a deal and testified against Avery, he probably would have only done about 15 years. Because according to his statement, everything was in motion when he first got into the trailer. Right. And everything he did was at the urging of Avery. And he also showed some remorse because in the the months after the murder, you know, he exhibited signs of having remorse. Uh-huh. 
Right. Or would he yeah. be involved in? Losing weight and things like that. Right. And um, so, you know, that's really the, the Avery family sacrificed Brendan. For sure. And as much as you want to claim the, the confession was false and all that, you know, there are there are statements between Barb and Brendan that lead me to conclude that she knows it's not false. At one point, she thought Avery really did do it. You know, right. Again, I got to wonder how much she is on the bandwagon to get some financial gain from this case because of making a murderer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but um, so yeah, in in Daffy, it was the uh, the confession and the evidence that. Corroborated the confession. Okay. The blood in the vehicle, the hood latch, the you know DNA on the hood latch, um, the while the body they didn't have a full body. Um, they at least you know they had the bullet fragment found in the garage, the two pieces of the skull that exhibited evidence of having been shot. Um, and you know the fact that the the bullet and the DNA on the hood latch weren't found until after Daffy confessed. Right, right. So both and, of them are convicted and sentenced to life. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. We, uh, both of them have the possibility. Correct of parole. I believe Avery doesn't. I know Daffy. Um, does. I don't know. Daffy was a juvenile. Okay, yeah, that that sounds about right because he was a juvenile. Um, he may have parole eligibility, mm-hmm. but I, I don't believe Avery does. Okay, okay. So they both appeal, or did just mm-hmm. is it just Avery filed no. at this point? Because I do see no, the direct Avery and Daffy both filed direct appeals, mm-hmm. which were their convictions were affirmed. Um, issues that Avery raised, one of the jurors asked to be excused. Right. Uh, is that the one that I believe had the, the day after the, the father? It was, it was a stepfather. Oh, he said his right. his stepdaughter had been involved in an accident. He was having he and his wife were having some issues. He didn't want to go into the court. Didn't inquire, and uh, he wanted to be off the jury. Well, then later on, I guess after Avery was convicted, he had second thoughts, and he got together with the with the defense attorneys. And um, he he told the story. I think this is actually during state post conviction of uh, one of the other jurors being biased against Avery and intimidating him. But he never mentioned that to the judge. And you know, when he asked to be let off the jury, he asked for a family emergency, 
and they criticized the manner in which the judge handled it, but the appellate court found that there was no violation of anything. The the court handled it the way it was supposed to handle it, and that Mm -hmm. he wasn't credible as to the other issues that he claimed uh, because he never reported those at the time they happened. Right. And then um, they had some issues with, uh, I think, the other crimes, and they had issues with the fact that they weren't allowed to uh, go after Scott Toddick and Bobby Dassey and Chuck and Earl Avery Mm -hmm. because they didn't have any evidence under uh, a case called Denny in Wisconsin that says mm-hmm. basically if you want to uh, raise a defense of an alternative suspect, you have to show more than just that the person had a motive and means and opportunity to kill the victim. You have to have some connection to the case. Right. Some connection to, or some connection between them and the murder. And all these other, you know, people that he wanted to point fingers at basically because, you know, Earl and, and Chug both had domestic violence issues and prior sexual assault claim, uh, allegations and Scott Toddick had a temper and you know, it was just, it wasn't they didn't have anything that showed a a connection between them and Teresa. Mm-hmm. Or to the murder, you know, there right. was no evidence that didn't implicate Avery that implicated them, okay. and um, so and then Dassey's appeal. I I don't really, I don't, I didn't read the Dassey appellate documents in getting ready to interview Mr. Griesbach and Mr. Kratz. Um, there was just too much material with Avery to go through, but probably the main the main issue with Dassey's appeal was his confession right. and that it was not voluntary, that it was coerced, and um, that was not both direct appeals. The convictions and sentences were both affirmed. Right. Thanks. <laughs> so. <clears throat> Same situation with state post conviction. Did they uh, put bring anything new? I did see, you know, a lot of the same points that they brought up in direct appeal. Was there anything? Uh, was there anything new as far as that goes? No, not really. And one interesting thing: mm-hmm. Stephen Avery filed a a pro se state claim, and he also filed several federal lawsuits against Kratz, Calumet County, the sheriff of Calumet County, all of which were dismissed. But Mm -hmm. he never filed a federal habeas corpus claim. Hmm. And his time to do so expired. Right. Because the conviction became final in 2011, and he had one year from 2011. Okay, and he didn't file federal post federal habeas claim. So <clears throat> Zellner may try to file a federal habeas writ uh, when she's done in state court, but I don't think she's going to be successful. 
Right. Because she will be filing it and raising these claims after after more than seven years. Uh Um, She'll file it based on the claims that she's raising in Wisconsin. But again, I think his time time to raise those claims in federal court is long gone. And she'll she'll have to get the Seventh Circuit to approve an out-of-time appeal, an out-of-time – well, an out-of-time filing. Well, hey, I mean, even though we deviated and you had a couple coughing fits, we didn't do too bad. We pretty much kept everything no. live. We're obviously in recording now. Uh, right. We didn't do too bad. I'm kind of proud of us. High five. Yeah, we did really well. We didn't digress too much. Right, exactly. But, you know, even on the digressions, right. I feel like we did well. I feel like we brought something yeah. new. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go ahead and close up shop, and uh, I do see uh, next week, I believe, we're going to be talking about uh, Carlos DeLuna. That is correct. All right. Going to be... Ready for me to do my outro? Okay. I promise. I will not interrupt. You're interrupting. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more... You can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week on Tuesday, January 29, 2019 at 8 p.m. Central for Episode 36, State of Texas versus Carlos DeLuna. DeLuna was convicted of the February 4, 1983 murder of gas station attendant Wanda Lopez in Corpus Christi, Texas. DeLuna testified at trial that the murder was committed by a man named Carlos Hernandez. The jury rejected DeLuna's testimony, found him guilty of capital murder, and sentenced him to death in July of 1983. He was executed on December 7, 1989, after his direct appeal, state post-conviction, and federal habeas claims were denied. In 2006, Columbia Law School professor James Liebman and his students began an investigation, which resulted in a series published by the Chicago Tribune. Then in 2012, Professor Liebman published a lengthy report of his findings and in 2014 published the book The Wrong Carlos. We'll discuss the evidence against Luna, the claims raised prior to his execution, and the findings of Professor Liebman next week. Thank you again for joining us. Everybody have a safe week.